Some of you may have heard of Howard Hughes. He was an American businessman and movie producer and an aviator, also an aircraft manufacturer. And he inherited a large fortune of money and also made billions of dollars himself. But Hughes was somewhat eccentric. For instance, he would go to Las Vegas and he would go to different hotels and he would make unusual requests of the staff and when the staff complained, he would buy the hotel and fire the entire staff. For all of his wealth, he was not a satisfied man. And he died eventually as a recluse. His money brought him no genuine satisfaction. We have a story in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18 of another rich man who also lacked satisfaction even with his considerable wealth. And in Luke chapter 18, we have the command of Jesus Christ that believers and disciples are to persist in, in, in prayer in verses 1 to 8. We see the encouragement to humility in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in verses 9 to 14. Jesus then uses a child as an object lesson to illustrate the need for humble dependence upon God unless one becomes like a little child and receives the kingdom of God like a child, he will not enter into it. But in the fourth section of this chapter of eight, chapter 18 of Luke, we have the story that is traditionally known, the story of the rich young ruler running from verse 18 to 30. It is a story that is found in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is found in Matthew 19, 16 to 30, Mark 10, verses 17 to 31, and of course, our text, Luke 18, verse 18 to 30. I want to suggest first, as you read this story, at first blush, it teaches us that eternal life lies beyond the, the scope of human ability. That is, eternal life lies beyond the scope of human ability. That's the first thing I think the story tells us. Luke says, now a certain ruler asked him, that is Jesus, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Luke tells us that he's a ruler. That is, perhaps he was one of the officials on the Sanhedrin, the council of 70 religious leaders that ruled Israel. Or perhaps he was a civil authority. Whatever area in which he served, he was a man of some official prominence. Matthew depicts him in chapter 19 and verse 20 as young. Mark tells us that it is while Jesus was walking along the route that this man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, 
good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This man was concerned with eternal life. And I want you to look at verse 18 in the passage. That is why when you attend worship services, you must have your Bibles with you so that you can make sure that what is said from the pulpit is accurate biblically. Verse 18, you notice that verse 18 has this theme of eternal life. And you will also note that verse 30 ends with eternal life. And so eternal life brackets, envelops this pericope, this small or short paragraph. Now, the eternal life which he's speaking about is the same thing as entering the kingdom in verse 24 and in verse 25. It is the same thing as being saved to have eternal life, at least in this context, equates to entering God's reign and to salvation. And so what he's come along to ask Jesus is, what must I do to be a follower of yours? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to enter your kingdom? What must I do to receive eternal life? The emphasis of his question is upon doing something. And you know that because in the parallel account in Matthew, Matthew actually shed light on the question that he asked Jesus. He says to Jesus in Matthew, at least, at least Jesus, uh, John Luke tells us that in Matthew 19, he says this, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? What good thing? He's concerned about doing something good. He believes that he could receive salvation, that he could enter into God's kingdom by doing something good. Now, he had already been doing good works, but, but he was somehow concerned that there was one element that he was missing. There is something that he should have been doing, but he's not been doing it, and he figures that this something that is missing is sufficiently serious that it might exclude him from heaven. He doesn't know what the problem is, but he comes to Jesus and he says, Now, Lord, if you can only tell me what is the missing element in my life, then I will just go about and fix it. I will do it and I will have eternal life. He believes that he can earn his salvation by doing good works. Now, Jesus begins to respond to him. And our Lord Jesus says, first of all, why do you call me good? For, he says, no one is good but one that is God. It is not clear that Jesus is denying that he himself is good, nor is he denying that he is God. But the man has used good, good teacher, what must I do that I might inherit eternal life? He's used good simply to butter up the Lord Jesus Christ. He's used it as flattery, good teacher, without consideration. And Jesus responds to him, do you realize that calling me good in an unqualified, unequivalent manner is actually calling me God? Do you really see me as God? Do you accept me as God? Because you're giving me an attribute that belongs to God alone. Our Lord Jesus then begins to answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord tells him that he must keep the commandments. You will note that in our passage. The Lord says to him, you know the commandment in verse 20. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. Again, 
we must recognize that Jesus is not again telling him that he can work his way into the kingdom by keeping the commandments. Our Lord Jesus Christ is now about to diagnose his condition. Our Lord is going to expose what really lies in his heart. So the Lord says to him, keep the commandments. You will notice that these commandments that the Lord Jesus enjoins on him are commandments that come from the second part of the law, of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The, the, the Ten Commandments divides into two parts. There is verses 1 to 4, which speaks about our obligation to God himself. You shall have no other God beside me. The second part of the Ten Commandments talk about our relationship to one another. Now Jesus selects the commandment from this second part of the law, which relates to our dealings with one another. And he says, you ought to keep this commandment. You ought to desist from adultery. You ought to desist from murder and from stealing and from lying. And you ought to desist from dishonoring your parents. Now the rich young ruler responds to Jesus. He says, but all of these I have kept from my youth. I've done whatever you've asked me. I've been there. And then Jesus comes to the heart of the issue. He says, there's one thing that you lack. There's one thing that you lack. You must liquidate all your possessions. Distribute the proceeds to the poor. For then you will have treasures in heaven. And then come and follow me. Now it is reading too much into the text to suggest that discipleship demands a life of poverty. Many who are believers are not poor. The disciples were not all poor. We know that Peter had his own house. We know that Andrew had his own house. They had their boat with which they fished. There were women who were followers of Jesus, disciples in the broadest category of the term, who were wealthy and supported the Lord's ministry. When Zacchaeus is converted in chapter 19, he's not told that he must sell everything that he has. But Jesus speaks to this man, tells him to sell everything he had precisely because he was in the grip of greed. Money had played a vital part in his life. He lived for money. He was ruled by the love of money. And so the Lord tells him to give it away to the poor and come follow him. Notice what the text says in verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sorrowful, very sorrowful, perilupus, very sorrowful. He was cut to the heart. He was deeply wounded and grieved by the command to sell his possessions and give them to the poor. This is the same word, sorrowful, perilupus, that is used of Jesus and by Jesus when he's in the garden of Gethsemane where he says my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. You see it is his sorrow over giving up his possessions that reveals the emptiness of his claim that he has kept the law. Because what this man failed to realize that even though the ten commandments are generally given in the negative thou shalt not the commandments do not simply mean that he must do no harm to his neighbor. When the Lord says you must not do this, he means you ought to do the reverse. So that if one is not to steal, he is to bless his neighbor. 
He is to care for his neighbor. Jesus sums up the law as loving your neighbor as yourself. And this is the second part of the law. But by refusing to give to the poor, he failed to love his neighbor. He just thought, if I did my neighbor no wrong, I'm fine with the law. But the spiritual implication of the law was that he was to, to do good. You see, fundamentally, this man did not love his neighbor. But his problem is even deeper. He is told to sell what he has, give it to the poor, for then he will have treasures in heaven. But he was sorrowful and would not do it. Why? Because fundamentally this man is an idolater. He's an idolater. You see, the command is you are to have no other God beside me. He failed in both divisions of the law. He failed to love the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. And he failed to love his neighbor as himself. Not even the promise of treasures in heaven could convince him to part with his wealth. It was his security. It was that which, for which he lived. It is that which gave him anchor. And because of his love of money, he decided not to follow Christ. He turns away from the command for absolute allegiance to Jesus Christ. And the point our Lord Jesus Christ is saying, is making is simply this. That eternal life cannot be gained by our own effort because ultimately our hearts are in the grip of sin. The second major truth is found in verses 24 to 27. That although it is impossible for men to secure eternal life for themselves, it is possible for God. Now, when Jesus saw that he had become very sorrowful, we're told in the text, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What our Lord Jesus Christ is doing here is raising before the disciples this reality that money, not only the money we have, but the money which we want to have, can be a terrible obstacle to entering God's kingdom and a terrible obstacle to salvation. That there are many who are not saved and will not be saved because they love money more than God. Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He says, let me tell you how hard it is. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of, of God. That's how hard it is. Jesus takes one of the, the largest animals in, the, in Israel, a camel, and he takes one of the smallest opening, a needle, and he says it is possible for this massive camel to force himself through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter heaven. The disciples are listening to this, to this. They realize that this statement not only refers to the rich, but to all men. For it was the view amongst the Jews that the rich themselves were highly favored of God. Now if the rich, who appear to be highly favored, cannot enter the kingdom of God on their own, 
then how can other persons be saved? And that's the question they asked the Lord Jesus. We, we are reminded then in verse 26 that they said, those who heard it said, who then can be saved? You see, it is impossible for man on his own to earn eternal life. But Jesus says while it is impossible for the rich and by implication all men to enter the kingdom of God on their own, our Lord says in verse 27, which I think is at the very heart of this story, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. It may be easier for a camel to squeeze himself through the eye of a needle than for anyone to enter the kingdom of God on his own. But what is impossible for men is possible for God. The term that is used by Jesus is the term donatos, translated possible. It means able, it means strong and powerful. The things that are impossible for men are possible for God. And this theme of divine ability runs throughout the Old Testament. One of the first places in the Old Testament where we read that all things are possible for God, that God is able to do the things that are possible or to do, the, to do the impossible, we read that in Genesis 18, where Abraham has pitched his tent by the oaks of Mamre. And the angel of the Lord, along with two angels, visit Abraham. And in the conversation with Abraham, the angel of the Lord, which is God himself, tells Abraham that indeed he and Sarah are going to produce a son. Now, Sarah is at the tent door, but she's eavesdropping. And the Bible tells us that Sarah laughed within herself. So not a loud burst of laughter, she just chuckled in her heart. And she says, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure? And my Lord being old, meaning I'm 90, my husband is almost 100, and you know, we're going to produce a child. It's a laughter of unbelief. But you see, nothing is, is hidden from God, and nothing is hard for God. And the angel of the Lord reads her heart, reads her thoughts, and he said, is anything too hard? Is there anything, pala, anything too marvelous, anything too difficult, anything too extraordinary for God? The things that are impossible for men are possible with God. The Bible points out that God does the impossible. We see that in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 32. The Lord there tells Jeremiah that he will restore Israel. They will indeed go into captivity, but he will restore them. He'll bring them back from the exile. And how does the Lord assure Jeremiah? He says, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? This language occurs on the lips 
of Job in Job chapter 42, where he says, I know that you can do anything, or I know you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. This same notion that God is able to do the impossible appears on the lips of the angel Gabriel. For when in this same book of Luke, in chapter 1 of Luke, he comes to Mary and he tells her that she's going to produce a son. She's going to give birth to the Son of God, the incarnate Christ. Mary is astonished at this news and she wonders how a virgin who has never entered into sexual relationship will be able to produce a son. And this is Gabriel's response to her. He says, for, for with God, nothing will be impossible in Luke 1 verse 37. The reason that nothing is impossible for God, it is because God is the God of gunatos, of power. This language actually is used in reference to God. For Mary in chapter 1, in the Magnificat, she's praising God for selecting her to be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she says, for he who is mighty, donatus, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You see, the reason that, that God finds nothing according to his will impossible, it is because he is the God of Donatus, the God of effective power. The same God who made the heavens and the earth, the same God who sustains the world by his mighty power, the same God who enabled an elderly couple to produce a son, the same God who empowered Israel and brought them out of captivity. The same God who caused Mary to be the mother of Jesus Christ, to conceive and to produce a son. This same God is the one who is able to break the bondage to idol, to every idol, whether it be money or sex or greed or self-interest or whatever it may be. This God, what the things that are impossible for men are possible for God, because he is the God of Donatus. The story, however, tells us something else. If, if eternal life cannot be accomplished and earned by men, but eternal life can be given by God who works the impossible. Verses 27 to 30 tells us that eternal life is the ultimate reward of God for the life of discipleship. And Peter then responded, See, we have left all and followed you. And Jesus responded, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. What Peter is saying, he's heard our Lord Jesus saying that it is impossible for men to squeeze their way into heaven. And he contrasts himself and his fellow disciples with this rich man. He says to the Lord, well, what about us? In fact, according to Matthew, the question that he's asking the Lord is simply this. What then will there be for us? He's saying, well, Lord, we have left 
everything. You've asked this man to give up what he has and follow you. He has refused, but we have done so. What is there for us? It smacks, you know, of self-interest. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus tells him that those who have left family and possession will never be disappointed. Now, let's be very clear. Our Lord does not intend us to mean that we are to abandon our responsibilities to our siblings, to our parents, or to our spouses and children. We know that Peter was still concerned about his mother-in-law. But for all practical purposes, they had left their homes, at least physically, and were following the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord says that those who have done so will receive in this life much more. Well, when you, when you look at this, what does it mean, much more? Does it mean that they're going to be given more possessions, more wealth, more money? Absolutely not. Contextually, when you read what our Lord says, he says to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom who shall not receive many times more in this present life. The many times more that they will receive in this life is the larger family of God. They have left their own families and the comforts of their family. And God will give them in this life much more. He will give them a larger a new family, a larger family, which is a body of Christ, the body of believers. But not only that will he give, he will give them eternal life. And this eternal life that he gives them is indeed, first of all, the gift of God. Paul tells us the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So eternal life is a gift of God, it's a gift of grace. But it is a reward of grace. It's a reward of grace. And I know that it sounds, it sounds paradoxical that, that eternal life is a gift and it is a reward. But we, we call it a gift of God and we call it a gift of grace. We call it a reward of grace. The reward of grace simply means that eternal life will be given to them undeservingly. In fact, if you were to go back to Luke 17, Jesus tells the disciples that servants do not deserve anything because when they have done their work, they must say to the Lord, they must say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what our duty was to do. They do not deserve heaven because this is what they were created to do, to simply serve. Moreover, they cannot deserve eternal life because even in their best efforts, they fall short of giving God the glory he deserves. So that whatever he gives them must be a gift of grace. But God promises them eternal life. And eternal life in scripture does not denote merely a long duration of time. If eternal life simply meant a long duration of time, then eternal life could also mean hell because hell is a infinite duration of punishment. No, eternal life, we are reminded, speaks of the quality of life. And the New Testament commentator Hunter describes it like this. He says, you know, you go over to visit some friends and you're having a fantastic time. You haven't seen them for a while and you're remembering, reminiscing about old days and old times and you're eating and you're drinking and you're having jokes. And something causes you just to glance at your watch and you realize the time has flown by. You got there at six, now it's one o'clock in the morning. 
He said, where has the time gone? You know, when you're having fun, time flies. Well, heaven is like that. Eternal life is like that. It's a suspension of time. It is, it is to enter into the eternal joy and delight of God. Where time ceases. This eternal life, a life of joy, is the purchased of Christ. It is purchased by his blood. He could say, I am the living bread who came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh that I shall give for the life of the world. Eternal life flows from the person of Christ. He has life in himself. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. Now, this is what the Lord says, that anyone who commits to discipleship, he will not only have a larger family, God's people as his family, but he will have the reward of grace, eternal communion with God. There was a radical writer in the 16th century called Thomas Muster. He led a revolt of German peasants against their masters in the 16th century. And on the morning when the battle between supporters of Muster and the armies of the lords and rulers were going to collide on the battlefield, Muster roused his troops, his peasants. And he tells them one simple thing. He says simply, paraphrasing here, that you are invulnerable to the weapons of your enemies. And the forces of Musta rush forward into the battle. They thought that they were invulnerable. They couldn't be killed. This promise was meaningful. But it was only as they were chopped down, 6,000 killed, 600 captured, and a handful remained. It is only as they were being slaughtered that they realized that the promise of invulnerability was a delusion. We live in a society where men think that they are invulnerable. And the young think that they're really never going to really die. And we live in a world, a pagan world, where people believe that they are invulnerable to God's judgment. You and I must know, however, that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. That we cannot hide from God. This is a God who says, do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Can any man hide himself that I do not see him? You and I must know that the important question of life is a question of eternity. That more fundamental than what will I eat tomorrow is where will I spend eternity? That is a question. It was an important question that this man had about eternal life. We are not invulnerable to the judgment of God. We must therefore ensure that we possess eternal life, the life of God. This, one Puritan writer tells us, is a satisfying life. In Psalm 
17, verse 15, the psalmist says, As for me, I shall see you in your righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awaken in your likeness. This is a satisfying life, eternal life. It's a life of all good and perfect good. It's a life where God gives himself as the reward. That God is the reward of his people. It's a glorious life. Because we will be glorified saints with the glorified Father and the glorified Christ our Savior. It will be a joyful life. Enter now into the joy of the Lord. The question then is how do we receive eternal life? Well, this story makes it clear it is not by doing good works. It is not even by giving money to the poor. It's not by fighting for social justice. No, it is coming to know God. John tells us in John 17, this is eternal life. To know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, eternal life requires this childlike dependence upon Jesus. It is to enter into a life of discipleship. To become a follower of Christ. And to rely with childlike dependence upon Christ. It doesn't mean that we should become childish. You know, we, we who are adults are very happy that we are not children. We, we think, you know, can you imagine, can you imagine the foolish things we used, to do, we used to do as children? I mean, I mean, even when you look at 20, when you were 20, some really crazy things, right, at 20. So can you imagine what you were doing when you were 6 and 7 and 8? Really nonsense, right? You don't have to admit it to me, but we know it's true. Children, with all due respect, are foolish. So we, we are happy to that we are, we are no longer children. We are adults. And, and that means we have independence. Now when Jesus says we are to become like little children, it doesn't mean we are to become childish, juvenile. But it means that we must display this one thing that all children have. Humble dependence. Children are dependent. For us to enter into heaven... We must depend on Christ. And that means that we must renounce the things in which we trust. We must give up our idols. We must realize that money and substance and possessions and position in life and status are no guarantee, no safety. We must abandon everything that elevates itself above Christ. We must become a disciple of the Lord Jesus. We must submit our careers, our future plans, our relationships to the supremacy of Jesus. Christ must be all and in all. To become a disciple of Jesus means that we must place nothing above commitment to him. We must obey his will. We must do his work. How do you enter into life you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ where he is your Lord and King. There is no other way. There is no salvation given outside of and apart from Jesus Christ. That salvation is found only in knowing Christ. This man, he came to Jesus, what must I do? The simple answer is that he must believe in dependence upon Jesus Christ. And for you as a Christian, I'm going to conclude here because my time is gone. Let me say this. 
you may be bothered whether or not you truly be saved. But I have good news for you. You must take courage. For what is impossible with men is possible with God. We cannot save ourselves, but God is able. The Bible calls him El Shaddai, uh, the strong one. In the New Testament, he is described as Pantocrates, uh, the Almighty. This God is able. Paul tells us that he's able to make all grace abound towards you, that you may have all sufficiency in all things in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. This God tells you that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think in Ephesians 3 and 20. He tells us that he's able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him. He's able to save completely. And not only is he able to save, he's able to cause you to stand. He's able to keep you from being lost. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. He's able to do this because the God you serve, there is nothing that is impossible for him. You see, this God is able to work with exceeding power. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead. God is able to work with you and in you with resurrection power. He's able to fulfill all his plans. That everything that he has promised, he's able to fulfill. Luke, you have good reason to trust him. You have good reason to believe. Because the things that are impossible for men are possible for God. There are no difficulties. There are no hardships where God is concerned. And so you must bow to him. You must trust in him. You must trust in a savior God who has almighty, infinite, indomitable power. The things that are impossible for men are possible for God for Jesus' sake.